Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Emily Crookston. Based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Emily, Emily is a former philosophy professor and currently a ghostwriter and book content specialist who works under the brand The Pocket PhD. Emily works with professionals from industry experts and thought leaders to business executives and others, both as a book coach and as a ghostwriter, to help them create a constant stream of original, well-written, and to-the-point content so they can reach the right audience for their work and ideas in just the right way. You can follow her on LinkedIn at IN slash Emily Crookston and check out her website at thepocketphd.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Emily's background and career, getting a PhD in philosophy, ghostwriting, and writing and publishing more broadly. So thank you very much, Emily, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Len. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in philosophy and eventually made your way to getting your PhD. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to tell that story. Um, so I grew up in Michigan, a small town in, in Michigan, and a, uh, I went to a small liberal arts college when I went to college, also in Michigan. And uh, when I started, you know, as a freshman, they said, okay, you have to take philosophy or religion. And I said, well, I know what religion is. <laughs> Maybe I'll try philosophy. I don't know what it is. Um, and so what I discovered uh, in the, my first philosophy class, which was basically an intro to ethics uh, sort of class, is that there's a way of talking about right and wrong, a way of discussing and arguing that doesn't always just go back to, well, this is what I learned in Sunday school, <laughs> or this is what God says, so this is what we have to do. Um, and so I really discovered that this kind of whole new world opened up to me, like uh, something that, that I just had no idea even existed as a subject matter. Um, so I really loved it. I said, well, I'm going to go to law school. This is philosophy major is a great thing. Um, and so I majored in philosophy and then realized, yeah, you know, actually, I think I want to go to graduate school. I think I want to become a professor <laughs> and, you know, started down that road, went to graduate school and got my PhD. Um, and, you know, it was hard. People told me, you know, academic life is going to be tough. Getting a job in philosophy isn't going to be easy. Um, but, you know, you don't really, it doesn't really sink in until you're there. And, <laughs> and so I was a teacher. I taught philosophy for about eight years and just discovered that all the politics and all of that stuff was getting in the way of enjoying the teaching. Um, so that's when I decided to leave academia. Yeah, I've got I've got a lot I could ask you about there. Um, I've I've got a doctorate myself. It was in English, uh -huh. and I I did read a lot of philosophy. Um, uh -huh. And I was just I was just curious. I mean, you know, it's that that decision to go to grad school in philosophy is a big decision, as you say. Mm -hmm. There's things you only you can only learn when you get there. Right. Um, but <laughs> did you have when you were doing your undergrad? Was there any particular class or philosopher or class of philosophy, as it were, that that really drew you in? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to do ancient philosophy, and I took ancient Greek. And I knew that at some point I need to study Latin as well um, to be able to read those folks in their original languages. Um, but yeah, I really was really drawn to Aristotle um, and through just falling into different classes in grad school, just, just, you know, started moving in a different direction and thinking, you know, I really will like ethics. I kind of went back to my roots. <laughs> I love ethics and political philosophy. And I really want to talk about that stuff, you know, with students. So that's, I ended up writing my PhD on John Locke. Um, oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. It's funny how different people's experiences are. My, mine went straight to Kant, you know, because um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the stuff that drew me in when I was an undergrad was like, um, you know, Heidegger and Husserl uh -huh, and, uh -huh, you know. Yeah. 
Well, I think that so much, right. So much depends on, well, for me, so much depended on the professors I had, you know, my favorite professor, that was the class that I thought I wanted to do. And then in grad school, you know, my favorite professor did Plato, but I felt like, oh, I don't know if I really want to go down, you know, felt like a whole new Mm -hmm. subject that I needed to learn. And I was an Aristotle girl, you know? Um, So Mm -hmm. I ended up saying, well, I'll I'll move over in this direction because I like this guy and what he's saying. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. And, and uh, if you don't mind not talking about it for a couple of minutes, um, what was your sure. PhD dissertation on? Yeah, so it was on John Locke. Uh, yeah, well, of course, Locke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah is, is political and social philosophy. And I was, I was trying to really bring together some of his er, very early work, in fact, a work that wasn't even published um, on natural law theory and how that connects up with his later work on political philosophy and, um, you know, a lot of his ideas about democracy and how governments are formed um, and and how that can be squared with some of the strict religious views that he seemed to hold in those earlier works. Um, So really trying to bridge the gap between his ethics and his moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's totally fascinating um, yeah. uh, and and I guess in many ways must have been must have been difficult to leave um, for people who, I think you write on your website the pocketphd.com about uh, academia there being a lot of bullshit in acad- in academia <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean I'd like to ask you a little bit about that but you know I, I can think of a specific yeah. example that people might not might not be familiar with how specific it can get so a friend of mine was getting an article published in a prominent philosophy journal and it got rejected and he could basically tell from the comments that one of the quote unquote anonymous mm-hmm. reviewers figured he was a rival and knew who it was who'd submitted yeah. this paper yeah. and so rejected yeah. it for that reason. And like, yeah. once you start learning about that kind of stuff and how political it can get and like, you know, people will use, it's very competitive and it's like, well, that's true, but it's not competitive the way the hundred meter dash is competitive, you know? <laughs> yes, um, right. right. And so I, I guess, yeah, yeah, so so that must've been a very difficult decision, but um, you know, and, and but you said you did enjoy the teaching part at least. Yeah, I love the teaching. And I think it's sad that the politics of everything else gets in the way. You know, it, it, what I really wanted was a tenure track position, um, a position where I could get tenure and then be, you know, there for the rest of my life, because that's all I wanted to do. Um, but after eight years being on the market, applying to 300 jobs, you know, it just became clear to me that I wasn't getting where I wanted to go. And that it's sad that that was the point when I decided, oh, I need to figure out something else um, rather than, oh, this is an option. This is one option among many, you know, had I thought that way all the way through, it would have been an easier transition for sure. But yeah, the story about publishing that you're, you know, from your friend, it's, that's that's not an isolated event, you know. That that kind of stuff happens throughout academia, um, and you know, I can tell you why I left, and it was very political. It was my department telling me, you know, you're in line for this tenured position, um, your tenure track position rather, uh, and then basically, ooh, sorry, you're not even getting an interview, <laughs> you know, for that position, and and then someone going to the because they overheard a conversation and the dean just canceling search altogether so they never hired anyone um and so at that point you know I had to take a ten thousand dollar pay cut I had to take an increase in my teaching load because I had nothing else for the following year um and so that was when I decided okay I'm giving myself a year 
to, to figure out my next move, but, but I'm out, you know, I'm, I'm getting out. Um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, a friend of a friend was looking for marketing help and I started writing her blog. She owns a web development company. And so she had clients who needed blogs. Um, and so that's kind of how I fell into ghostwriting, um, writing the blogs. And yeah. after, you know, at a certain point, she said, you could start a business. And I thought, oh, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where, how I ended up here. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating that you you found a way to stay in the world of words and ideas, yeah, um, even yeah. even outside outside academia. Um, and of course, uh, the wonderful variety of things you would get to do uh, right. with a business with a business like yours. Um, yeah. And so I, I gathered from something I read maybe on LinkedIn or or on your website that um, you were writing marketing content like you were just kind of describing. But then, you, as you just mentioned, you decided to start your own business. I think it was in May. It was the fifth anniversary or something like that. Um, yes, that's right. So. Yeah. So when you started at your own, when you sort of went out and started your own business, what were, I know, I know I could tell from the research I did that you, you think things through and, um, and like, I think you got a business coach or something like that at the beginning. What were, yeah. what were some of the things you were sort of most worried about or excited about when you started your own business? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. It, it, I was most anxious about not failing, right? Not fucking it up. <laughs> um, I, because I think uh, coming out of academia, what I really, really wanted more than anything was the syllabus to starting a successful business. Just tell me the <laughs> steps and I will do it. You know, I'm really good mm -hmm. at following directions. Um, but I had to really let go of that, you know, hope or that, that, you know, intention because running a business is an experiment at 24 seven. It's, you know, oh, I'm going to try this and see if it works. And if it works, okay, then I'll try something, you know, I'll keep going or, um, you know, I'm going to track this thing and see what happens over the next month. And if it looks good, then I'm going to keep going. Um, and so once someone said to me, you know, you got to think about your business as an experiment, it changed my view of, of everything. It, suddenly I was like, oh, like failure kind of is off the table at this point. If it's an experiment, then I'm learning things whenever something that I think is going to work doesn't work, right? It's not exactly a failure. It's, it's a bunch of stuff that I've learned <laughs> and, oh, maybe this piece works and I can, you know, do it over here. Um, so that in a lot of ways took the pressure off uh, a lot in the beginning because um, I thought, you know, and I also had the thought, you know, you're not the kind of person who fails, <laughs> right? You have a PhD, <laughs> you've gotten through 10 years of, you know, graduate school and, and in, in looking into, you know, doing a professorship and all of that. Like you've been very independent in your work <laughs> for a long time. Um, there's no reason this can't translate into running a business. Also, my dad uh, owned a small business my whole life. Um, and so, you know, it started kind of clicking for me, like, oh, maybe this is something I can do. Maybe this is in my blood. Maybe this is, you know, something I, I can, I can find the resources I need to figure out whatever I need to figure out. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating to me what you said about, um, you know, I know I'm not the kind of person who fails. I got a PhD. I think, I think it's some yeah. people, you know, to, to sort of boost that idea, because that's actually, we'll get into that when, with about the branding of your, of your business, you know, the pocket PhD. But, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, professor in their ivory tower. But if you ever see people who've gone through, let's, let's, let's narrow the focus to humanities PhDs. Yeah. They have their own version of the thousand yard stare that they can share with each other. <laughs> um, you know, you've, True. you've been through something unique, um, yes, and yes. difficult, uniquely difficult. And it's not all around, oh, because mm -hmm. the ideas are hard or there's like a, just years of reading, but like, there's all kinds of yeah. 
challenges you need to overcome. And it's a very long-term self-directed thing, in, which is one of the most particular things that's most important. And also typically to get a PhD, your dissertation has to not only demonstrate familiarity with the whole discourse of the subject that you're in, but also being a contribution to it as well. Yes. And to pick someone like John Locke and make a contribution, <laughs> you know, in, in the right. early 21st century takes a lot. Right. Um, yeah. And so, so you, so you decided with that, you know, boost uh, to the yeah. idea. You, you decided to brand yourself the Pocket PhD. Was that, was that right off the bat, or was that something you came to after some experiments? No, that was right off the bat. It took me a while to come up with the name, but I, yeah, I wanted something that, that did that you know connected me to the past, <laughs> that past identity of the PhD. Um, with, but what I discovered once I started the business is I got a lot of pushback from people saying, but what is the pocket PhD? And, you know, your name should say something about writing, something about ghostwriting, you know, um, something in there, you know, and I just, I just, I just loved the name. It just resonated with me. I was thinking of a pocket thesaurus, you know, I'm the, I'm the writer you pull out of your pocket when you, when you need something. And I kind of had in my head, like, and you know, in the beginning, you don't exactly know where, where the business is going or what kind of writing you're going to be doing. So it's really hard to come up with this branding stuff um, and the name. Uh, but I had in my head, you know, I could start an agency of PhDs and you know, maybe they could do any number of business tasks that someone might need done. Um, and that's kind of still in my head as you know, potential down the road. Um, more, most immediately, I'm thinking about hiring more writers to help me with some services. Um, but you know, I just thought, it, how cool would it be to have a, a business where you could you could hire a PhD like a hired gun? You know, <laughs> like um, so. That's sort of what I was thinking uh, when, with the name. Yeah, it's 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 um one of the things that I find so interesting about it. I've got this little sort of you know catchy, I guess, got sort of like bon mot or something like that, which is that the kind of education you get with like getting to the level of a PhD in humanities grants you a power that must be possessed in order to be perceived, um, and that's that's one of the things that makes communicating about it so tricky, notoriously tricky going back to antiquity, right? Like what's the value of getting an education to that level? And it's like, well, you kind of have to get there to know. And then they're like, well, what's the good of it if you can get to there and you still can't explain it to me? It's just an right. interesting <laughs> paradox. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, but that, that idea of, um, of finding people who've done these long-term, like decade-long self-directed things at a very high level and then just sending them out and applying them to, to different business challenges um, yeah. I, I think is a really great idea. Um, and I mean, you know, that that's something that I think would appeal to a lot of people with PhDs who've been turned off of academia, which is yeah. probably at least at least half. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, I always think about when talking to other academics who are thinking about starting businesses, you know, in the um, in the humanities in particular, it's difficult to see how your skills translate. And I didn't know how my skills translated. I mean, I, you know, I found this position and was like, oh, I guess I'm kind of good at this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in other fields and sciences, it's like, oh, well, you can go in industry. You, you know, there are, there are lots of options, but for the humanities, and I, and I think we sell ourselves short because we're like, oh, what am I gonna do with this PhD that I, you know, I'm, I'm unemployable <laughs> in some ways, but it's, you know, it's not true. There is, the world is open, you know, wide open. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my personal experience after I finished my doctorate in English, doctorate in English, I went to do investment right. banking and did mergers and acquisitions, you know, and, <laughs> and that's when I found out, oh, there's actually like, 
we undersell ourselves and th then you start looking, yeah. it's like, oh, Henry Paulson got an English degree and so did mm -hmm. the former CEO of the Bank of Montreal and stuff like that. So there's right. more of us yes. out there than even than some people might think. Exactly. But, um, yep. uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, that, that, uh, it's, it's, I could talk about that all day, obviously. But um, uh, so <laughs> the, the Pocket PhD turned five in, in May, as we, as we already discussed, and you wrote a, a really great post about, about some of the top things you've top five things I think you learned in those five years um, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about one or two of those um, okay. pricing I think how to price yourself that's something that people who go independent and be uh, into consulting businesses and stuff like that have a really yeah. tricky time with at the beginning at least yes yeah pricing in particular was tough in the beginning and that was one of the major reasons I hired the business coach at first because I thought I don't even know how to price <laughs> my services so she at least pointed me in a direction um, with that. I read a book called The Well-Fed Writer, um, and that had some really good advice around pricing. Um, and, you know, I've always, I don't know where I got this idea, but I've always just kind of raised my prices along the way, just kind of on a regular basis. Um, so I write a couple of books at a certain price, and then I raise the price for the next two, you know, that kind of thing. And that got me really comfortable with how far I could go um with with ghostwriting and how much it costs um i i like to think about pricing as contextual um so you know if i were going to write a book for i don't know someone in a nonprofit you know i might think about reducing the price or a student like i have a i have a student who's thinking about leaving academia and she wants to increase her presence on LinkedIn and I'm working with her there and I'm not charging her the full price that I charge um, to my corporate clients, for example. Um, so I think when you think about pricing in those terms, or if you talk, I talked to a client who, you know, told me, oh, I've used a ghostwriter before and I've paid X. Well, then I'm not going to charge them less than what they paid before. Um, you know, so pricing is really, it, it can be very contextual. And I don't think that that means there's like not a high price that I could go to where I'm never going to find a client for sure. Um, but you can kind of hone in on the sweet spot if you think of it in that way. It does, you don't have to set your price today that in this is going to be your price forever. You can always change prices, um, especially if you're in a service-based business, especially if you're doing one-on-one -on -one type work. Um, you just, I, I think I want to encourage people starting businesses or working in, in these fields to charge you know, I won't say what you're worth because I don't, I don't know what that means, but, but charge a price that makes you feel really good about what you're delivering. Um, because there's nothing worse than, you know, taking on a client because, oh, you're desperate and you, you, you don't have any money coming in, taking on a client for less than what you want to charge. And then they become the biggest pain in the ass you ever met. And suddenly you're regretting every moment of the work that you're doing. Um, so I'm always thinking in terms of pricing myself in a comfortable place where I feel good about what I can deliver. And if the project goes over time or if I need to spend, you know, extra time on it for some reason, I'm okay with that because I built that in um, to my price. Yeah, that I think uh, you mentioned writing a couple of books there, um, uh, <laughs> which is part of what you do as a ghostwriter. Um, and I wanted to use that opportunity to sort of uh, move the discussion on to talking about that because I think I find the subject totally fascinating. And you're the first ghostwriter I've interviewed for the podcast. So <laughs> you're breaking new ground here. Um, uh, so I was wondering, <laughs> wondering if you could talk a little bit for those for those who might not know. Imagine someone doesn't they've never heard of the idea before. Um, what does a ghostwriter do? 
Yeah. So I do most of the time I ghostwrite books. That's my main business, uh, business books in particular. And I also ghostwrite blogs, but basically the idea is you come to me with an idea. You don't have the time, or maybe you don't have the inclination. You're not that excited about writing. Um, you have more ideas than you have time to write those ideas down. And so you bring those ideas to me and I take them and I run with them. Um, and I do a lot of my own research, um, but I also really like to keep my ghostwriting jobs very collaborative. Um, so when I do a book, for example, it's a 16 week process. Uh, you come to me with a complete outline. Um, I, I sit down with you. It can be a working outline. We can work on it. Um, but I sit down with you and we meet once a week. We talk through different pieces of the book. I write, you edit. And um, in, in the end, we go through about two rounds of revisions. Um, and it, it becomes this like beautiful mind melding kind of process um, where in the end, if we've both done our jobs well, then you take full ownership over the book because you've really been through it every step along the way. So I think one of the biggest challenges with working with a ghostwriter is thinking, oh, I won't know what's in my book <laughs> if, if someone else writes it. And I think that's a really valid concern because if you're writing a book, you're going to be using it. You're going to be doing speaking engagements. You're going to be interviewed about the book. Um, if you've done the marketing correctly, you're going to be talking about this book a lot. So you need to know what's in there. Um, and so I think through a really collaborative process that really helps you take ownership um, in a way you might not if I said, okay, thanks for the outline, I'll see you in six months, <laughs> you know, here's your book. Um, so I, I think it's been working really well for me and my clients uh, with the collaboration. Yeah, that sounds like a really excellent model. I mean, the idea of, you know, you, you're, you're sort of, I think you write about this, but like, you know, you're sort of testing the client out too. Uh, it's not, it's not just the other way around um, when you're trying, and it's going to be a relationship and it's going to be collaborative and creative. And um, you do, you do talk and then it's sort of like people full, of, I imagine they're usually really excited and full of ideas. And you're like, well, give it some structure first, as you said, working, working outline maybe is all it needs to be, but yes. um, uh, having, having that sort of mind meld happen must be a really kind of interesting experience. Uh, but you yeah. also, I know you sometimes have to be honest as it were with, with your clients as well. And I, does that, does that, I imagine that happens not just at the level of the outline, but it's actually the, the content and the actual substance of the ideas itself. So the person, they, they're in a debate with you as mm. part of the process. Is that right? Yeah, often. Yeah, you know, I work with experts. I tend to work with experts. And what's really good about working with me is, you know, I, I wrote a book, for example, with a, a neuroscientist, uh, a, a parenting book, actually. So she's a pediatric neuroscientist. Um, and, you know, she's she's got all of this huge body of knowledge in her head and she's trying to talk to an audience like me somebody who doesn't know very much about the brain um or very much about parenting maybe um and and you know so what's really helpful is that she can i can be kind of a filter for her i'm like a, one of her first readers and so she she tells me what's going on and i kind of take all of these notes and 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 you know restructure everything and say okay now explain this to me like i'm five you know uh, let me let me wrap my mind around it so then i can translate it for your audience um a lot of the work i do feels like translation it's like taking the expert ideas and the technical stuff and working it out so the you know a, a reader with without that expert knowledge can really understand it and and get a lot of value out of it. 
And I imagine you also, people might come to you with like, oh, I'm going to write the next, you know, global bestseller and win a Nobel prize or something like that. But I think a big part of what you have to do is try and use your knowledge and expertise to help people understand once you understand what they're really after, who the real audience ought to be for that, for that project. Yeah. Positioning is really huge. Uh, the biggest question I ask prospective clients is what is the business case for this book? Because we're writing business books, I want you to think very hard about the ROI here. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't like taking people's money with, I'm not sure if, you know, there's they, you know, some people come to me and they want to write a book that's totally outside of the realm of what their business is all about. And I just want to know, like, you know, how does this relate to your business? How is this going to help you get more clients? How is it going to help you get speaking opportunities? You know, what's what's the payoff for you? Because if you want to write a book about your childhood, <laughs> you could do that. Um, and that's fine. But is this the right time for you to be putting all your energy into that? Is this the right thing for you to do? And, you know, if you want to write a book about, you know, your childhood for your grandkids or something, great, record some interviews. Like, why would you hire a ghostwriter and pay me a lot of money to, <laughs> to, to write that for you? It's, there's got to be a return on that investment. So that's, that's one of the biggest questions I ask and it's often where the biggest pushback happens. <laughs> one other thing you write about in this post about the five, five main things you've learned is something that really resonates with me, which is uh, lesson four, positivity is not synonymous with Pollyanna-ish. Um, <laughs> yeah. I deeply yeah. believe that myself. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what you what you mean by that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think it's related to this idea of toxic positivity. You know, you run into people who anytime you're you have a venting moment or you have something to complain about, they're just like, oh, but it's OK. You know, look at the silver lining <laughs> or, you know, this. Oh, well, think about the lesson that you're learning. And, you know, I can appreciate the perspective of, yeah, there's probably something positive that might come out of this terrible situation, but that's not something I'm ready to look at until probably down the road. Um, and I think sometimes we skip over the negative feeling too quickly when what we need to do is feel it and let it, you know, rush over us and, and take it in a realistic way and look at it for what it is. Um, and I think that that can actually give us a better lesson down the road once we are able to see it from, for the positive stuff that's there. But if we just try to flip from the negative to the positive too quickly, I think it can cause some whiplash. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, running a business is a really emotional game. It's, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, it's about figuring out how to manage your own emotions, uh, especially when you're a solopreneur. Uh, and that I think is one of the the other big lessons I've learned <laughs> as a as a business owner. Yeah, well, that actually on that note. So um, one thing I introduced into the podcast uh, longer ago than I wish it were, given that I'm still asking about it, is um, asking people how the pandemic affected them and their business, and uh, that's a very emotional thing. I mean, you know, I've talked to people who solopreneurs, some of whom are like, it hasn't changed anything at all. You know, I'm an I'm an introverted, you know software developer who works out of his yeah. basement and always has and you know I go running by myself you know things like that right. um, to to people who are like my whole half my business is speaking engagements as a consultant and being flown out to talk live to people and it's also something I really love and I remember one guy in particular at the beginning he's like it's all just dried up I don't know how yeah. how this is going to go so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about 
about how that affected you. I gather, I, I think I listened to a podcast where you talked about you'd had some big plan yeah. for 2020 that got derailed. So if you wouldn't mind talking a little about, bit about that and how yeah. it felt and how you adapted to it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the early days, I definitely freaked out and said, I don't know how I'm going to keep this business going because I relied really heavily on in-person networking events. That's where I got all of my referrals. That's how I found, um, you know, all of my clients basically before the pandemic. Um, and so I was in panic mode for a couple of months for sure. Uh, and then I sort of stepped back and took a breath and, you know, I got some stimulus money. And so I was like, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I think I'll be all right. I think I can figure this out. Uh, and I just thought, you know, I've always wanted to really lean into using LinkedIn for my business and I've never really made the time to do that. And so I just made the plan and the plan was very simple. I was just like, look, I'm just going to be consistent on LinkedIn until this pandemic is over, basically, until we can go back to in-person networking. Um, and so I just had this plan of like, okay, I've got a formula, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I've got a plan for each day of the week, and I'm just going to post come hell or high water, you know, if nothing, nothing else matters. And in doing that, I realized really quickly how important consistency is on these platforms, um, for one thing. Um, but I also started learning, you know, more about my own audience and uh, discovering what people really enjoy reading on LinkedIn and recognizing that, you know, I've heard the statistic that only 1% of LinkedIn users actually post their own content. Um, so it's not that hard to stand out as a content creator on LinkedIn. Um, the algorithm does crazy things. Everyone's complaining about that at the moment. <laughs> um, and you know, you can you can stop seeing the kinds of page views you were seeing three months ago really quickly, which can be disheartening. Um, but in general, if you just stick with it and you focus on particular metrics, like after you know using LinkedIn for even like three or four months, I suddenly was getting all of my leads through LinkedIn rather than referrals. Um, and I thought to myself, well, this is what I've always wanted anyway. I always thought referrals were kind of hit or miss. That That's not really a steady uh, lead generator, <laughs> right? right? It, what I need is, okay, if I, you know, have 10 conversations on LinkedIn, I'm going to get a client out of it. You know, that's what, more in line with what I'm looking for. Um, so, you know, I just discovered, you know, there, there are other ways to network. <laughs> you can clearly network online through LinkedIn or through Facebook or whatever your own platform is. Um, and it's, you know, it's different. It's not the same as maybe a face-to-face -face interaction, not as immediate, at least for me, it takes a little, you know, the sales cycles a bit longer, um, but it can work, you know? And, and so I was, I was doing well, you know, with the pandemic, I, I really didn't feel much of a difference until about spring of this year, then things slowed down quite a lot. And I think the vaccine came, people started sort of moving around more, they started thinking less about maybe their business. Um, and I think also people started getting really burned out. And I think in a burned out space, it's really hard to think about a book. <laughs> um, I, I heard people say, I, I can't even focus on reading, how could I think about writing a book? <laughs> you know? um, so yeah, so you know, since the spring, it's been slow on the ghostwriting side of things. Um, but I have notice things picking up, I would say, within the last month or a couple of months um, again, so, yeah. One really interesting thing, I, I don't know why, why I found it so fascinating, but the, uh, about being a ghostwriter from just reading on your website is that you can't, you can't really show your portfolio necessarily yeah. in the way that an ordinary 
you know a, a writer can. Um, so I'm just I just like to ask not 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 for you to give away any secrets, but like specifically, how can people find out uh, about your what you the work that you've done if they're interested in in say you know approaching you for for work? Yeah. So I always tell any prospective client that you can get in touch with my clients. I'm happy. They're happy to have me put you in touch with them privately um, to have a conversation. So, you know, I do that kind of uh, on a referral type of basis. Um, I also, this is one reason I need to create a lot of content, I think. Um, and, and so I put out a lot of blog posts. I've been doing two a month or so for a while. Um, I have a newsletter, of course, and then the, the LinkedIn stuff. So I always say, you know, at least if you like my content, that should be enough to get you on a phone call with me. And then if I can gain the trust one-on-one -on -one and you talk to one of my previous clients, that should be pretty good. Um, uh, the other thing I do is... I'm happy to give a list of books that I've edited and my editing is developmental editing. So it's not, you know, proofreading. It's not very surface level editing. It's pretty deep in-depth editing. So you can get a sense of the way I work by looking at the titles that I've edited and the types of things I've done. Um, always happy to share blog posts that I've written for other clients as well. And once the, actually, that's something that's really interesting thing I wanted to ask you, but, but just before we do that, um, there's something I neglected to ask you earlier, which is, so if someone comes to you, they, you're like, give me an outline and let's talk about it. And you decide you'll work well together. And eight weeks later, there's a book. Um, <laughs> do you help? Eight weeks would it be, I, I, as I was saying it, I was like, wow, that's, that's faster than that. Anyway, than yeah. I thought, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, um, but then do you help uh, with marketing the, the book afterwards as well? I don't, I have resources that I can share and I'll, I'll send people to, I have a couple of um, Amazon bestseller list guru type people that I'm happy to share uh, information with. I do often offer like blurbs for, for Amazon, you know, here's a summary, here's a blurb for the back cover, here's your bio, uh, happy to do little things with marketing. But as far as a marketing system, no, that's my expertise. <laughs> Okay. And, uh, and um, writing, so you see you write posts for people as well, right? And is, is that the same thing too, where you'll, you'll come up with like a schedule, like, you know, it's going to be seven days a week or three times a week or something like that. And you agree the schedule and then you probably outline them in advance and then yeah. write and edit. Right. So this service is most more new, uh, newer for me. It's something I developed over the summer, um, but it's LinkedIn content strategy and content creation. And what I like to do with this is we meet monthly. We have a content strategy session where we talk through types of posts that we want. Um, two blogs are included in the package as well. So it's two blogs plus three LinkedIn posts per week. Um, but the thing about LinkedIn is that you really need to be on it for it to work for you. You can't, like people ask me about schedulers, LinkedIn schedulers or things like that. And you really can't post, it's like schedule your posts ahead of time with LinkedIn because you really wanna be engaging on the platform before and after you post. Um, and the algorithm really picks up on that uh, with LinkedIn. So it's, you know, they're driven to create conversations. So they want to see that you're active, that you're commenting on other people's stuff. Um, so that's one of the biggest kind of barriers to getting LinkedIn to work for you, because if you're super busy, it's, it's, you know, it's great that I'm creating posts for you and you don't have to do that part. So that does save you time, but you still need to be 
you know, setting aside about 20 minutes a day uh, to be on there and to be engaging. And I'm not interested in being a LinkedIn manager. So I don't want to take over and be the go your ghost on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, happy to help you create posts, uh, but don't feel that comfortable commenting if, as you <laughs> um, in real time. Although maybe that's something to think about down the line. I don't know. Um, so yeah, so the service is we create the post for you and we create some blog posts as well. Um, and then you do the engaging and you're there. You've mentioned the algorithm a few times there. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a really fascinating feature of you know, the self-publishing world, whether it's books or, or you know, you know, getting attention on social media and things like that, that we all have this concept that like what we're doing is being evaluated in some changing way. Um, and, and so everybody who gets involved in this, if you're trying to increase your profile on social media platform, if you're trying to get attention for your book, you have to make a decision about whether you're going to engage with the algorithms in this sort of very like trying right. to game them kind of way or whether you're just going to kind of like have have a sort of like high level understanding or whether you're just going to ignore it completely um and i gather the sort of high level understanding is the kind of approach that you you prefer rather than kind of like chasing it all the time yeah i yeah i agree i just i don't feel like i have the energy to chase an algorithm and i don't think there's that much value in gaming an algorithm i mean even if you did manage to game it that they change them so often that whatever you figured out isn't going to work in a few weeks, you know. Um, so why put all that time and effort into it? It just it feels maddening to me to try to chase down an algorithm constantly. Um, so what I like to say is figure out what metrics matter to you because the metrics that the algorithm cares about are not likely to be the metrics you care about. Right, the algorithm wants you to get that dopamine hit so it wants to show you constantly how many people have viewed your post. But how many people view your post is not a metric that's that helpful for you. <laughs> What's helpful for you is seeing how many people engage with your post and comment on it. What's helpful for you is figuring out how many people who see your posts then send you a DM and want to talk, uh, right? How many leads you're generating. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, if I'm getting the number of leads I need, I don't care if my post views are down. Um, if they're being shown to the right people <laughs> who are likely to be my leads, then that's, that matters more to me than having thousands of followers or, you know, 10,000 followers mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I, from what I gather, at least from, from having looked around and failed to find you, uh, you're not, you're not on Twitter, I don't think. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm actually thinking about doing a Twitter strategy because I'm finding it hard to sell LinkedIn services on LinkedIn. Um, okay. Right. <laughs> because of the algorithm and so LinkedIn has their own stuff to sell. They don't want to sell my stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm, I am on Twitter. It's E.M. Crookston, but uh, oh, okay. yeah, so not the pocket PhD. Um, so that's what makes me hard to find. But I am thinking about doing more on, on Twitter uh, for sure. I've tried Facebook. I'm over it. I'm not doing Facebook for business anymore. Uh, and I've tried Instagram, which also so it was, it was challenging for me. I don't love the visual stuff. Um, as a writer, I can't wrap my mind around making that work for me. Um, but Twitter seems like the place. So, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I find Facebook um, uh, confounding and infuriating personally. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I interviewed someone who worked there for the podcast once, and he didn't say that what I'm about to say, but I kind of put together uh -huh. that like, why, why is Facebook so crazy? And I'm particularly talking about like in the browser on a desktop, right? Right. And uh, every single square inch of that is somebody somewhere fighting for your engagement. Yeah. And it's, it's not a coherent thing. 
right? right. It's, it's by design. It's just like they'll give a person a desk and they'll give them a part of that screen and they'll say increase engagement here, basically to, to wow. put it to put it crudely. So yeah. everybody's fighting all over wow. the place for you. And that's why like, that's one of the explanations for why it's so like, it, there'll be this like, yeah. there's just something on every square inch. It's something, it's a huge complex service with some so, obvious and very aggressive and sort of ambitious people behind it, but they don't, they don't really tie together. So it's very kind of deep in every part of it. Uh, but also, mm. um, and I'm, I'm, you know, not making any specific accusations here, but like Facebook's the only place I go where I click post and then I have to wait a few seconds while it says posting, you know, mm. and like, I can't help but think, oh, somebody somewhere, mm. whether anybody knows it or not, put a little delay so that he gets to, he or she or they get to bump their metrics for their little part yeah. of the process. Yeah. Um, and once, yeah. you, once you start, whether that's true or not for that specific example, <laughs> once you start thinking that way, it's like every single part of it, you're like, this is all designed to waste my time. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, unfortunately, LinkedIn is feeling a bit like that at the moment. And what I've gathered from talking to other people who know much more about the algorithm than I do uh, is that they have like eight different algorithms and the mobile algorithm is different from the desktop. And, you know, it's, it sounds similar to what you're describing, where there's a lot of people competing to try to make things work and they're not talking to each other at all. Um, and it is, it's totally maddening to, to see that. I mean, you know, you, you have a post and you're doing the same thing, exact same thing, right? It's getting the comments it was getting, you were getting three months ago, but the views are just in the toilet and you're just like, ah, what is going on? You know, people are like, seem to be liking this post. They're commenting on it. Why isn't it going up? <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's one of the, that is one of the reasons I, I kind of like, I mean, you know, everybody's like Twitter's awful and it's like, yeah, there are parts features of Twitter right. that can be totally awful, but the fact that it's still got this basic functionality of like your followers are people who've chosen to follow you, whether they yes. act like it or not all the time is another thing, but you know, <laughs> the people you follow are people you've chosen to follow and it's yeah. simple messaging and replies back and forth, things like that. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, as long as you can keep away from the toxicity as much as possible, um, right. it actually is a really, a place of very clear and kind of personal engagement where it feels like it really is that person and you, not Facebook. Mm -hmm that's right. you know yeah. having a conversation yeah i agree i feel like twitter is becoming higher on the list <laughs> of, of where i want to be right now online yeah yeah um and uh yeah i just i just got a couple of a sort of like um the kind of you know when we get to the end of the podcast we talk about sort of you know very sort of specific kind of we'd like to talk about things as writers and and publishers and, and self-publishers and stuff like that um uh, and I just wanted to ask you, so how do you, so you've got this 16 week process that you sort of engage in, you've got a client, it's all ready to go. How do you keep yourself um, motivated throughout that period when you've got a new client? Do you, do you schedule everything like one from 1 PM to 2 PM or 3 AM to 4 AM or something <laughs> like that? Well, how do you manage your writing that way? Um, I do tend to try to sort of eat the frog when I have a new ghostwriting client, um, like the hardest thing is getting the draft done. I think the first first bit, getting all of the all of that stuff down and figuring out how we each work together and you know getting into a groove that way. Um, so it's really helpful to get as many words done as possible as quickly as possible. I like to try to actually do the full draft in eight weeks, and that gives us eight weeks to edit it. And that tends to give me a good result. Um, but yeah, I like to write in the morning. And like I said, I like to do first thing, the hardest project I have of the day. And if I have a ghostwriting client, that's that's what it is. Um, so I'll usually set the first two to four hours of the day where I'm really gonna try to hammer out 
um, a lot of the book uh, or as much of the book as I can in that day. Um, I do have uh, word count goals in mind. I usually tell people 40,000 words is a good goal to shoot for um, with a business book like this. Um, so that means I need to write 20,000 words um, you know, in the first month and 20,000 in the second month. And so you know, I'll just break that down into 5,000 words a week, pretty doable, 1,000 words a day. Um, and that usually I can hit that goal pretty easily. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I have the same kind of, at least not with respect to writing necessarily, but like hardest thing first, yeah. um, <laughs> get that one done. Yeah. Um, uh, and breaking it up into chunks like that can be really helpful too, particularly something I think, I don't know if we've talked about it that much, but you did mention consistency earlier on and how this is actually just a sort of principle that's particularly valuable in all kinds of areas of life, specifically I mean, well, with podcast uh, publishing, it's true. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> when you're trying to appeal to algorithms, it's true. Uh, but also when you're trying to get things done yourself, it's true that just making it a habit, getting a little bit done every day can really help a lot. And sort of like even just with your sort of own mental mental health. Yes. Yeah, I'm finding that now. I actually am writing my own book at the moment. And yeah, that's, you know, I, the reason I usually say I'm not a good book coach is because I think the key to writing a book is just putting words on the paper, uh, no matter how messy they are. And no matter, you know, how, how poorly you think it's going, if you're hitting a thousand words every day, they add up. And, you know, when you have 40,000 words, you're like, oh, look, I, I wrote a book, you know, <laughs> I've got, I've got words to play with here. And it's much easier at that point to edit it. Uh, would you? I didn't know that, but would you mind talking a little bit about the book that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I actually set out this year with the goal to write my book and started in January, you know, roaring start. I took a, a, a course to figure out my book idea. I did, did my homework very dutifully uh, and I set my word count goals and then you know, at, like most resolutions, I suppose, after about six weeks, I just said, ah, to hell with this. I'm not doing it. Um, but what stopped me was that I could not outline the book. Um, so now you know why I bring, make my clients bring me an outline, because <laughs> I find that piece of organization uh, particularly challenging. Uh, but I just couldn't wrap my mind around where the book is going. Um, I know it's going to be about self-awareness. Um, and so I've I want to talk about my journey to self-awareness and how important I think self-awareness is for business owners. Um, but I've picked it up again. I've got about 8,000 words at this point. Um, and I've been writing, you know, pretty consistently, 1,000 words a day. And what I've decided is I don't need an outline. I, maybe that's not the way, best way for me to write my personal books. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm going through questions. I'm, I've picked like 20 questions around self-awareness and I'm just kind of riffing on each of those questions, what I know about them. Um, I'm leaving the research till later, but I'm, you know, I'm just kind of shooting off the cuff um, about each of those questions. And then I figure I can organize it later. So <laughs> that's, that's the method right now. No, no, that sounds that sounds fascinating. I, I like the the way that you know, every, you know, everybody's got to find their own way through. And there's gonna there's we we talked about it before with the PhD, right? There's gonna be ups and downs, uh, and and yep. learning how to push push through it, and and that it can be different every time. Yep. As totally. well as part of the part of the robustness that you need to develop, and of course, you know, sometimes it you know it's on a downward trajectory, and other times it's on an upward one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I guess the last question I'd like to ask you is, um, if you had any, if there's someone listening to to this podcast who is thinking of writing their first book. Um, what would be that say one or two pieces of advice you would give to them things maybe you wish you'd you'd known when you started out doing doing this kind of work? Yeah, I think I would say 
you know, experiment, <laughs> just like with the business, you, you want to experiment with, with writing. So uh, maybe you're really good at writing at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> because you're a night owl, you know, give that a shot to see if it works for you. Um, and, you know, maybe you're, you're better in the afternoon. You're better if you hit your book after lunch. Um, but play around, you know, give yourself like a week of trying to write at a certain time of day and see how it goes um, and then switch to a different time of day and see if that works better. Um, so I would say, you know, experiment like I think that's coming out of my own experience like, oh, I can't come up with an outline. So I guess I better figure out a different way to start <laughs> writing. Um, but like I said before, I think the number one thing when it comes to writing a book is just getting those words on the page, however it, it needs to happen. Um, if that means taking a walk and coming back, like, go for it, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. Um, and I do recommend setting some kind of word count goal. Um, I, as opposed to some people will say, well, pick up, you know, an amount of time that you want to spend writing your book. That doesn't work so well for me. For me, the goal of hitting that number of words uh, is just really key. Um, and you don't have to be too strict about it. I like Adam, uh, not Adam, James Clear's advice in Atomic Habits, which is, you know, you start a habit, don't skip more than a day. So if you take a day off, all is not lost. It doesn't mean you you ruined everything because you broke your streak. Just get back on it as, as soon as you can and, and keep going. And I, I find that to be really satisfying. Um, you just, you know, you're, you're checking off the goal on your calendar and it feels good. <laughs> it, yeah. it definitely does. Um, well, uh, thank you very much, Emily, for being on, on the yeah. podcast and for, for sharing all those shots and that, those, um, uh, sharing all that advice and everything and, and, uh, for sharing your journey with us as well, which was really great to hear about. Um, so yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Len. <laughs> thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.